This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. How many times have you heard a joke that you found to be distasteful in some way? A joke that was beyond only being cringeworthy, but to some extent it was dehumanizing. A joke riddled with hate, whether it be ableist, sexist, or even racist. Sure, you might display a feeling of awkwardness, or maybe you would directly express exactly how much you are offended to the person telling the, let's say, racist joke. Whoever the would-be comedian is may respond to your offense by claiming it's just a joke, as if it didn't mean anything, let alone being intended to do harm to anyone, even if the target of their so-called joke is, in this case, dehumanized. But as today's guest points out, fascists, the far-right, reactionaries, and conservatives of every stripe have long used that excuse of whatever racist joke they uttered being nothing more than a joke for centuries here in the United States. In this way, when it comes to racist humor, racists can show support for white supremacy while never being held responsible or accountable for their words. They can continue their racist ways simply cloaked in the guise of humor. However, that humor can be very powerful and can reinforce all levels of hatred under the belief that laughter is the best medicine. In reality, laughter can be addictive and, like many addictions, can be very harmful and subject to abuse, even when racist humor is shared by a person of the race that is the victim of the joke. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by sociologist Raul Perez, author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. Raul is assistant professor of sociology at the University of Laverne. His work has been published in American Behavioral Scientist, Discourse, and Society, Ethnicities and Sociological Perspectives, and featured in Time, The Griot, Latino Rebels, and Zocalo Public Square. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, anything new by you, aside from the fact that you are now our Tuesday producer instead of our Wednesday producer. Anything else new by you? Hmm? I don't know, just the amount I know about monkeypox, I guess. Oh, really? You've been reading <laughs> up on monkeypox? Oh, yeah. Like, this, we just went through a pandemic. Why isn't everybody, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I uh, went to the art show. I saw you at the art show this weekend, and the next morning I woke up and I had three little bug bites on my left shoulder. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't work that fast. No, but. it doesn't. It doesn't work that fast. But my, What's the first thing my girlfriend says to me? She says, so you've got monkeypox. No, every single blemish on my body is monkey monkeypox until further notice. So. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I'm very, I'm very much freaking out about monkeypox, despite the lack of monkeys here in the Chicago area. I'm very, very freaked out by it. A friend of mine was working at Michigan State University, and uh, he was watching an, uh, a gentleman who was from India uh, who is staring out the window, looking at, you know, just the wilderness, the, just the nature that is outside the windows of many buildings at Michigan State University. And he was uh, watching squirrels run around. He was just completely obsessed about the squirrels running around. And my friend came up to him and he said, what are you watching? And he said, what do you call your monkeys? 
<laughs> so that's when I learned that apparently there are monkeys running around all over India, just like we have squirrels running around all over the United States. So I just ah. think of squirrels as our own little Midwestern monkeys. So I finally had what is hopefully the last medical procedure in my long-running medical ordeal caused by a chronic digestive disorder, which led to sepsis and an infection that almost killed me back in early March. 35 staples were removed from my Frankenbelly without anesthesia, a process I was fearing because the pain from the previous unanesthetized staple removal during this ordeal was intense. However, I'm happy to to, uh, relay that I could uh, could barely feel anything this time, and in six weeks I should be completely healed up. So thanks to everyone who wished me good health and good luck throughout this nightmare, and Now let's never speak of it again, but more important than that, which will never be discussed again. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, This week's question from hell is... is Dot, 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 dot. Hold on. (laughs) This week's question from hell, the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from now? (laughs) Repeat one more time for our listening audience. Uh, what consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. As well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, as we do most weeks. During this week's moment, Jeff takes us to the super true town that was the model for the mythical Lake Wobegon. And who knew we'd be doing a callback to Garrison Keeler this week? I had no clue. Again, you can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or destructive in, uh, criticism, if you'd like, at, at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during that interview with your suggested guest. We got an email from longtime listener Tom G., who has not only given us fantastic guest suggestions in the past, but has also joined us at several of our This Is Hell listener appreciation and anniversary parties. Our next party will be celebrating 26 years on air at Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. That's happening on summer's final Saturday, Saturday, September 17th, at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. There will be food, live music, and a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes. We will also be hosting the closing of This Is Art, the art the art show that in the gallery just outside the door to our studio. Again, where I'm speaking from right now. Tom wrote to us right before last weekend's 50th anniversary party for Carrie's Lounge and the opening of the This Is Hell sponsored art show, This Is Art. Tom writes, hey Chuck, 
I loved listening to your This Is Hell origin story on the most recent Patreon episode at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm glad that I ended up in Chicago and stumbled upon your WNUR radio show in those early days. We are all fortunate that your seemingly unlikely path to alternative radio has perfectly positioned you to present such a wide variety of activists and writers whose work most of us would otherwise have remained ignorant of. Even when I don't automatically agree with some of your guests, it is well worth contending with their points of view, and I always benefit from widening my own frames of reference as I navigate my way through the myriad of ideas and institutions that shape this weary world, this veil of tears, this hell. Please keep up the great work. I look forward to hanging out with you and the This Is Hell crew at Carrie's Lounge sometime soon, but I don't expect to make it to the current This Is Art opening and 50th anniversary of Carrie's. Later this week, I will travel to my hometown in upstate New York to visit my mom for her 96th birthday, so I'm being extra cautious about exposing myself to the general public because I don't want to risk bringing her a coronavirus variant. Thanks again. Keep the faith. Solidarity, peace, and love. Tom G. Tom is not the only one who did not make it to last week's Carrie's party and opening of This Is Art due to concerns they would contract forcing uh, contract the virus, forcing them to cancel uh, travel and vacation plans with family members and loved ones. Rinaldo Magaldi, who does the research for and writes our regular so- segment, This Week in Rotten History, which will be happening later on today's show, he also did not make it to the party and art opening last weekend for the exact same reason, except instead of visiting a 96-year-old mother in upstate New York like Tom, Rinaldo will be visiting his girlfriend in Germany. Yes, this Sunday I will be traveling up north and spending two weeks with family during our annual summer vacation at Cottage on Lake. And yes, I was worried about getting COVID or monkeypox, and who knows, maybe me and or my uncommon-law wife did actually contract COVID. I hope not, but it's possible. Of course, we are both double-boosted and quadruple-vaxxed, but we will not know if we are or are not infected for certain until around 12.30 on Friday afternoon, as on average, the first symptoms of COVID appear 5.6 days after an infection. And it would definitely suck if either one of us got COVID. Sure, while at the party and opening, we wore masks while indoors. But when we were on the back deck or in the beer garden, we were definitely going maskless. And the crowd was so big that it was difficult to maintain any semblance of social distance. With Chicago being back at high levels of infections, we both took our chances. But I can tell you, if I was visiting a 96-year-old mom or flying to see a girlfriend who lives overseas, I definitely would not have risked it. All that said, we did take our chances because of the vaccine and its boosters, because of indoor mask wearing, and because on the show we've been promoting the yard opening and party for months and not showing up because we thought it was unsafe would have been both hypocritical of me and we would have also been racked with guilt we did not celebrate Carrie's 50th birthday with owner of Carrie's Lounge, Pete Balavanis, who is a very dear friend of ours. And that guilt would have been compounded by the fact that we only live a block away and that one block walk is downhill. So here's to hoping neither of us have the virus. And here's to Carrie's Lounge and their 50 years in operation as a hub of the neighborhood and community. And here's to hoping that nobody at Carrie's and at the party last weekend, contracted the virus. Again, you can email us at chuck at and if you do, we'll likely read your email 
on air. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with sociologist Raul Perez on racist humor and what we can do about it. Again, coming up, racist humor is more than just a joke. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? The consequences of which questionable act you took are you running away from? Maybe it was going to the party and risking contracting coronavirus for me. We will also have This Week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. The far right, including the president prior to our current one, dismiss their racist humor by claiming those who point out that their jokes are clearly racist, they're just being too sensitive or too politically correct. And if those taking offense go a step further by advocating for the racist humorists to be held accountable for their racist jokes, racists will attack the offended by stating that they are advancing cancel culture or violating the racist freedom of speech. Here to help us reconsider what humor is and how it can be weaponized in a process of dehumanization very much rooted in white supremacy, no matter the race of the comedian engaging in racist jokes. Sociologist Raul Perez is author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. And Raul, the first question I have to ask you, and I know that this is an annoying question whenever I hear any interviewer ask it, it's about the title of your book. At what point did you come up with the title, The Souls of White Jokes? Uh, okay, well, that's yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm glad your surgery went well. Uh, I know that must have been pretty traumatic, so I'm glad to hear that you're doing okay. Yeah, and thank um, you to you. You've sent me many messages about uh, my uh, about with guest well wishes, so I really appreciate it, Raul. I really do. Thank you very much. For sure. Uh, um, yeah. So I mean, I think this this is a this is a great question to start off the uh, the interview. So yeah, the, so the Souls of White Jokes is definitely a play on the work of sociologist uh, uh, and historian W.E.B. Uh, du Bois, right? So a lot of his work was really in trying to examine this problem of racism, problem of white supremacy. Um, you know, Du Bois is probably better known for trying to unpack sort of the, the, the impact of racism um, on the Black community in particular, his, his book, The Souls of uh, Black Folk. Um, but he also has another uh, essay that he wrote, um, you know, a little later, uh, titled The Souls of White Folk. Um, and in that essay, Du Bois is really trying to understand this kind of contradiction of white supremacy that, you know, on the one hand, you know, he says, you know, um, he's got this quote where he says, you know, this, this assumption that of all the hues of God, whiteness alone is inherently and obviously better than brownness or tan. Um, and, and he kind of is kind of poking fun of, of, of white supremacy and um, this idea that, that whiteness is inherently superior. And he's kind of even joking about it in the essay. You know, he's saying like the first effects of this idea that whiteness is better, he says, are funny, you know? So he's observing like the strut of the Southerner, he says, or he says, you know, the, the arrogance of the Englishman. Um, but then he's saying, you know, once you in interrogate it a little further, like the, the outcome of this white supremacy is this idea that, you know, that, that, that white, you know, that white people, the white race is somehow, you know, better than in, in any other uh, group of people that's ever lived on the planet. 
right? He says, you know, this idea that you know, that every every white man's thought, you know, is is superior. That every white man's deed is superior. And he says, you know, here's where the comedy verges um, into into tragedy. So so I really kind of began to consider Du Bois as one of the central sort of theoretical figures for the project because of the fact that he's unpacking whiteness and white supremacy. Um, but the fact that he sees the contradiction inherent within it, right? So Du Bois writes this essay, The Souls of White Folk uh, in 1920. And this is right around the time of World War I. Um, and he says, you know, how is it that, that this idea of white supremacy is so powerful and pervasive uh, he says, take a look at Europe and, you know, white people are murdering each other. You know, they're, they're, they're colonizing each other. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're competing for greater, uh, you know, slices of territory in, you know, Africa, Asia, and, and Latin America. And he says, so, so this white supremacy thing is kind of, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's, you know, kind of a false consciousness is, is what he's kind of concluding. Um, but he says, but it's still, it's still powerful. And one of the reasons he says that it's powerful, and he writes about this in other essays and other books as well, um, he says, you know, there's something about the way that that racism and white supremacy is able to draw in, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, working class white folks to to forge an alliance with um, with upper class white folks, with ruling class whites. And this is what he calls, you know, the public and psychological wages of whiteness, this, this ego boost that, that, that this idea of whiteness being superior um, to, to other racialized groups um, is, is, is an ego boost for, um, for white working classes in the, absence of, in the absence of actual capital, actual uh, economic uh, or material power. Um, and so thinking through some of that work by Du Bois, I, I really wanted to understand, you know, well, how does racist humor work in a similar way? How has it worked similarly historically? And so this is how I got into the idea of really unpacking the history of sort of blackface minstrelsy and how that worked in, in that context, uh, racist humor to kind of create both this false consciousness, but also how it's connected to what Du Bois called the you know public and psychological wages of whiteness, um, but then seeing how how the racist humor has evolved, how it's kind of gotten hold in different social institutions and organizations today, um, and that's kind of what I map out in the book. You know, so how has how has racist humor um, um, how does it operate today, in what context, and and what are the consequences of it? So is racist humor an intentional, a purposeful distraction or obfuscation of people having any kind of uh, criticism of capitalism? Is that the point that to make sure to make it so people who are, let's say, not wealthy, uh, not have any kind of critique of capitalism distracted by this racist humor? Well, I think it, it can be. I mean, I don't think it's it's always conscious it in uh, consciously done in that way. I think sometimes it can be done, but sometimes it could be done unconsciously. So, I mean, part of what, what I'm trying to think through in terms of the way racist humor works, I'm, you know, uh, I'm also drawing on sort of, you know, theorists who are thinking about the way emotions work. And, and one, one of the things that, they, that, that folks argue is that, you know, the emotions are, are social. They're not purely individual. Like, you know, we have our emotions, we experience them individually, psychologically. Um, you know, emotions are also socially shared. 
and in and in the sharing of of of, of emotions in a societal context part of what you're doing is you're kind of forging alliances. You're creating in-groups and out-groups. Um, and so through racist humor, part of what you're doing is you're kind of creating simultaneously an in-group and an out-group, right? So, I mean, the other thing about humor is that it's pleasurable, right? It's uh, like you mentioned earlier, like laughter, you know, we have this idea in the, in the society that laughter is the best medicine. You know, you're always seeing these kind of opinion pieces on sort of the the benefits of laughter and humor in, in our daily lives to combat depression, to combat, you know, feelings of isolation and alienation. So it's, it's, a, it's a social pleasure, but as a social pleasure, you know, it helps us sort of bond with other people to feel like we're closer to them. Um, but as you mentioned too, I mean, we can also overdose on laughter. It can be used as a social poison. And so when it's used against other groups, racial, gendered, um, uh, and so forth, uh, it's it's used to create this sort of this 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 cleavage or this this um, this sense of distance or what I call in the in in a, in the book you know this this uh, amused contempt right feeling like you know you, uh, taking joy and and uh, pleasure in the misery of of others somehow makes you feel uh, you know more sure-footed or on higher ground uh, than the other so in in a in in a in a society that's divided already, you know, by race, by class, by gender, th then these forms of humor then already work to reinforce those systems. It can be in a conscious way, but also in an unconscious way. You uh, cite the sociologist, uh, and I'm missing his first name, uh, last name of Anderson. Uh, observing how among uh, themselves black people uh, often refer to this experience after the fact in a light-hearted manner and with an occasional chuckle as the n-word moment it is something of an inside joke at the time it occurs however the awake awareness of this act of acute insult and discrimination is shocking the victim is taken by surprise caught off guard the this moment is always insulting and even a relatively minor incident can have a significant impact is that the intent of the white person telling the racist joke, to use the minor incident of a joke in order to have a significant impact on the person and their race that they are targeting? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think Eli Anderson, I think, is the sociologist. Right, that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, th I think it can be, right? I mean, I think in some si certain situations, and I think historically, that has been sort of the, the way in which racist humor has been wielded. And, and one of the ways that I divide sort of the history of racist humor in, in, in my work is looking at racist humor of the pre-civil rights era and then racist humor in the, in the, in the post-civil rights era. I think definitely in the pre-civil rights era, that's kind of how it was used and intended, maybe in a more sort of conscious or direct way to kind of put people of color uh, in their in their place, and you know certainly that still happens to, um, today as well. But I think it was it was just part of the the cultural norm uh, in society more broadly in the pre civil rights era. That's why you had, you know, the sort of the culture industry of blackface minstrelsy, um, you know, uh, was so pervasive for over a century. Um, you know, so I so I think sometimes it can be done in that sort of direct overt way to, to, sort of, to sort of signal sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, dominance or, you know, positionality. You know, I think sometimes it, it can be done sort of unconsciously, right? Sort of, you know, uh, a white person could sort of just make a comment, not thinking, 
you know, so much about, uh, uh, you know, the, the intention or how it might land, you know, just kind of, you know, off the cuff making a remark that, you know, again, in a, in a racialized society, in, in a society where you already have sort of the, the history and the, and, and the living history of, of white supremacy and racial inequality and structural racism, you know, an off the cuff comment about, you know, uh, 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 a person of color, you know, uh, in, in, you know, whatever the, the person might think they're, they're ex- expressing a joke or a comment or a funny comment, you know, it might not land that way to, to the person, you know, especially, I mean, this is the other thing too, to keep in mind, especially if, if there isn't already a sort of a, a, a strong social connection there, right? So if it comes from a stranger, you don't know what the intentions are from the stranger, you know, how did they mean that? How did they interpret that? So it comes off as an insult, you know, when you're friends with the person, you know, sometimes you might give more sort of slack for comments that are made. Sometimes, you know, jokes are traded more freely across, you know, and those could include, you know, racist jokes with folks that, you know, you think you're you're on the same sort of wavelength, you're friends, you have a sort of history. And so, and so you kind of, you know, you, 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 that's been part of the dynamic in certain friendships. Um, but even in those circumstances, sometimes a joke can go too far. And, you know, and there's been cases where, you know, well, the, the, the friendship ends because of a joke, right. Or, or sort of a social relation can end because of a joke or the joke, you know, was, was, uh, was interpreted in a different way than maybe the person intended. And so that's why there's also a distinction between, you know, um, intention and impact you know somebody can have one intention but the way it lands on the person again based on their lived experience based on social circumstances based on social inequalities um it's it's going to be perceived differently than perhaps the person intends and i want to make certain that you are in in your book you're not just writing about trying to in some way uh, demonize just the individual who is telling the racist joke so what does racist humor reveal uh, not only about the racism of the individual telling the joke, but racism more structurally in a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, in some sense, I am approaching the study of racist uh, humor kind of more from a sort of you know, both a materialist and a sort of, I guess, culturalist perspective. You know, r- r- racist humor is is, an, is a direct expression and connected to the the racist structure of the society. Right. So, uh, you know, um, you know, blackface minstrelsy, for instance, as a culture industry, you know, emerges in the early 1800s, you know, only a few decades after the United States becomes uh, a country. Um, And, uh, you know, but at that point, you know, here in the colonies, you know, uh, you know, racism, chattel slavery, you know, white supremacy had already been, been been in practice you know, for a few, for a few centuries before the United States becomes uh, a country, you know, here in the, in the hemisphere. So, um, so that a, a culture industry like blackface minstrelsy, right, uh, comes, comes after the fact. It comes after the fact that already you had a sort of a, a, the conditions of, you know, settler colonialism, you know, white supremacy, you know, uh, uh, the idea already was being cemented that, you know, that whiteness, that, you know, that Europeans, 
you know, were superior and they were set to dominate the planet and the globe. And, you know, and that included the people on different parts uh, of, of, of the world. So then if, if that's the kind of the, 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 the material base that you're emerging from, then the cultural sort of sphere is, is going to begin to reflect that, right? So you see that in the laws, right? Laws are also cultural. So the laws that emerge in the society begin to justify and reinforce that, yes, the world should be organized uh, in this way, the, the society should be organized in this way. Um, and then at a certain point, the, the art forms of the society begin to reflect that too, right? And so, uh, you know, blackface minstrelsy is essentially an art form. And, you know, some historians argue that it's the first sort of homegrown art form of what becomes the United States, because prior to uh, the emergence of blackface minstrelsy in the early 1800s, you know, after the United States becomes a country, you know, the, the, the cultural art forms of the early United States were still European. I mean, you had, you know, Shakespearean plays and Italian operas and, you know, European classical music that was playing at the venues here in, in the early, in the early uh, part of the United States. So there was nothing uniquely cultural about the United States. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the, you know, some European sort of, uh, you know, uh, artists and writers and intellectuals were saying, well, there's nothing really unique about the United States. You, you're still basically Europe junior. There's, there's nothing distinctly, uniquely uh, 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 that sets you apart from Europe in terms of your cultural forms. And so blackface minstrelsy, on the one hand, was a kind of response to that saying, well, well we're going to make fun of your high European art by having black people play your instruments, dress up like you and pretend to be you. And, and so it was kind of a mocking of European high cultural uh, uh, sort of art forms. But then it was also being used to essentially uh, uh, reinforce and strengthen a sort of racial order and hierarchy here in, in, in the colonies and what became the United States. Um, and so it was simultaneously taking a jab at European culture, but at the same time, reinforcing white supremacy, making fun of, uh, uh, of the condition and status of black people here um, on this side of the Atlantic. And, and at the same time, also kind of sending the message to, you know, European immigrants and lower class, you know, uh, you know white folks here, that, hey, you know, you might be poor, you might be dispossessed, maybe you don't own any land, you're getting exploited by the boss, your boss won't give you a union, uh, but don't worry about it because at least you're not black, at least you're not a slave. And look at, you know, look at what it's like to be, um, you know, a black or a slave in this country. And there was a daily reminder on the comic stages and the blackface minstrel stages. So, so, so yeah, so, so the, these art forms then re are reflecting the sort of the actual material reality of, you know, a white supremacy in, in a society where racial capitalism is taking hold. We are speaking with sociologist Raul Perez, author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. On Twitter, you're Raul Perez SOC. Is that correct, Raul? Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure I had that right. And this is the day that The Souls of White Jokes is being published. We are getting the very first interview with Raul on this book, and I cannot thank you enough for that, Raul. You know, you write of the history of blackface and minstrelsy. Quote, this genre of humor was developed during the early 1800s by white entertainers who, as you were pointing out, painted their face black while routinely 
imitating, mocking, and caricaturing black people as stupid, buffoonish, inarticulate, and childlike. Urban, northern, middle-class white performers like Thomas D. Rice and Dan Emmett were some of the first to popularize the genre by ostensibly sharing authentic portrayals of southern plantation life on theater stages in northern cities during the early to mid-19th century. These and other performers developed popular stage characters like Jim Crow, Tambo and Bones, and Sambo, figures that were projected as genuine portrayals of black people in America. To what extent does racist humor today convey to the audience that it is a genuine portrayal of black people in America? And if it does, how much does this uh, racist humor success uh, depend upon the audience's belief that it is a genuine portrayal of black life, black life? Because it reminds me of the phrase I so often hear when it comes to racist humor, and that is, it's funny because it's true. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, as, as you were as you're, uh, you know, framing your question, I wrote down that same quote. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's another thing that we have in our society and the way sort of common sense often works. Yeah. So we hear that phrase all the time. It's funny because it's true, you know. And and I think when it comes to racist humor, uh, you know, both before and after the civil rights period, and even today in the so-called you know post-racial or colorblind era of of the especially of you know, the, the late 90s and, and early 2000s. Um, I think that was part of the draw to a lot of this, to a lot of this humor. And, and um, you know, one of the things that I kind of explore in the book is, you know, the, the way that racist humor begins to be normalized in a post-civil rights era, you know, because the civil rights movement was the first time that racist, racism more broadly, but then racist humor specifically was seen as a problem, was seen as was seen as socially and morally unacceptable, <clears throat> whereas it had been completely normal and acceptable from the early 1800s up until the 1960s, right? So over 100 years, it'd been, you know, just a, a core part of American society. And, and you just, you know, it, it was there, you accepted it, and it was part of the yeah popular culture. It was on television, it was on the radio, <clears throat> and it was just, you know, it was, it was there to remind you of what the reality is. In the post-civil rights era, you know, racism is seen as you know morally unacceptable, and that included um, in the form of, of humor. Um, but of course, humorists and comedians, and you know, part of their job is always to sort of you know find those norms in the society and say, well, we're going to play with them, we're going to tweak them, we're going to see how unacceptable you know some something is, and then you know, and then we're going to make people laugh about it to see how silly these these boundaries are. So that's that's kind of one of the one of the one of the ways that 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 or one of the roles of the, the humorist in, in the society. Um, and, you know, some of the first comedians to really begin to, in a sense, begin to renormalize the, the use of racist humor in the post civil rights era, you know, were comedians of color themselves, you know, uh, you know, uh, especially in the case of black humor, black comedians in the case of, you know, Latino humor, Latino comedians. So it was it was this new era where the pre-civil rights era, white folks made uh, fun of, they mocked, they ridiculed, you know, all people of color. And that was to reinforce the social order in this post-civil rights era. Well, white people can't do that anymore because it's seen as racist. So the cultural industry kind of shifts a little bit and it allows for those, uh, you know, uh, members of racialized groups to become the new sort of laugh makers 
uh, by engaging in self-deprecation, right? So, you know, people like a Richard Pryor, for instance, really became a household name by sort of conveying the Black experience, you know, the Black urban experience uh, to, uh, to, to, to listeners, you know, all around the country and all around the world. And of course, the other thing that made Richard Pryor really famous is that he kind of, in a sense, almost normalized the N-word in the post-civil um, rights era. A lot of it was done by Pryor in sort of in this in this political maneuver, saying that well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the poison out of this word. Um, um, it, Pryor wasn't the first one to do that. You know, Dick Gregory uh, had, had also you know, he wrote a book about it. He was also a comedian, very much you know uh, invested and a part of the civil rights movement. So you had these comedians, uh, black comedians, who said, you know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna take the poison out of the N word. We're gonna take the sting out of, you know, white folks making fun of us, we can make fun of ourselves, we can, you know, we, we have a sense of humor too, we can, we can show, we can show you all what it's really like, right, you know, the blackface entertainer, you know, they presented themselves as giving an authentic portrayal um, of, uh, of, of black life uh, in the society, and that was the draw that, you know, because most white people had never seen uh, uh, you know, black people. Most white people in America didn't live on plantations, so the the, the way they saw black life was on the was on these minstrel stages. Um, and a similar thing happens post civil rights with the comedy stage, with the stand up comedy uh, performers. Um, and so, but now you have you know actual members of the group presenting the the, the uh, this world to you know to predominantly white audiences, um, and 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 again, it's presented as an authentic portrayal, uh, and you know, part of what's being presented then are also kind of the stereotypes, right? The exaggeration, the sort of, uh, you know, the crazy shenanigans that, you know, someone like Pryor sort of describes about what it was like to grow up, you know, in, in Illinois and in, in Peoria, it was his hometown, you know, and he has a lot of really sort of tragic, but, you know, the way he presents them is in a very hilarious way. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it also works to then kind of normalize this idea of, well, well, this is, this must be what the black experience is, or in the case of a Latino or Asian community, this must be what the Asian or, or you know, Latino experience is. Um, and of course, it, it might be the case for some members of the group, not all members, but again, that's how stereotypes work. They begin to sort of normalize what well, this is. This is the standard way. This this is the way that this particular group is. Um, and and this idea of it's funny because it's true then begins to be normalized the more the culture industry of, of stand-up comedy begins to draw from communities of color. And then the, you know, the, 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 the comedian of color then becomes the new mouthpiece to, that reinforces these racial stereotypes, um, even when they try to subvert them. So, you know, so Pryor is, is I think, is a really classic case because you know, he really made use of the N-word. I mean, it was displayed on all of his, well, not all of his, but many of his of his uh, stand-up comedy uh, record albums. Um, and, you know, he thought he was taking the poison, the sting out of the N-word. He was, he was trying to reclaim it. Um, but of course, Pryor has a sort of crisis of consciousness, you know, later in his career. You know, he goes to Africa to sort of, you know, try to figure out what's going on and, you know, try to, you know, has this moment of, sort of a crisis of consciousness comes back from his trip and basically says on one of his, you know, one of his last performances says, you know, I was wrong about, you know, uh, you know, using the N word so freely, you know, and, and one of the things he points out is that, you know, once he started to do that, 
And once he was getting really popular, he noticed that, you know, you know, white audience members would come you know, to him after the performances and then they would tell him N-word jokes. And he's like, uh, you know, I don't like when you do that. Like, you know, that's that's not OK that you're doing that. So, so it was almost like, you know, certain audiences felt that he was giving license for them to do that. Um, and so in that sense, then, yeah, you, you, you can see how this idea, it's funny because it's true, begins to be normalized. Um, you know, uh, and in this case, it's normalized by white entertainers who are, uh, I mean, sorry, entertainers of color who, in a sense, are being exploited by the culture industry of comedy. You know, they're becoming celebrities, superstars, millionaires. But part of that, part of the way they're doing that is by exploiting uh, these racist tropes. Um, and again, even when the entertainer might think that they're undermining them. So how thin is that line then between race humor and racist humor? Yeah, I, I think this is something that 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 comedians um, and, and I see this sort of much more in in the last in the last few decades, uh, and really in the last decade, especially by 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 kind of this new crop of of comedians. I guess the millennial comedian might have gone to college, took some courses, and you know, critical race theory or whatever, and and much more intentional in trying to sort of. Um, you know, uh, uh, and being deliberate. And here I'm thinking about, a, you know, certain comedians, you know, uh, uh, Harry Kondobalu is a comedian that comes to mind that, you know, and, and, and some of his early interviews about his comedy, because, you know, his, his form of race-based humor, it, it, you could sort of see the way in which he, he was really intentional in trying to make sure that the race-based humor that he was unpacking was sort of not sort of punching down on people of color or that, you know, the target that he wanted to hit, you know, uh, was going to be clear in in the in the in the jokes that he was crafting, um, and he and he writes in some interviews that you know writing this kind of humor, is, he says it takes a long time. It's it takes a lot of energy. You know, it's 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 uh, you you have to think through like the different angles of it to make sure that you're hitting the targets you want to hit. Um, and so that, you know, in, in this sense, he's trying to create almost an anti-racist humor. So we can have a spectrum then of you have racist humor that is, you know, again, in, in the vein that is trying to intentionally mock people of color. You know, you have, quote unquote, racial humor that can be ambiguous, that it could be read different ways that, you know, it might be read differently than the comedian intends. But, you know, it's playing on on sort of racial tropes or stereotypes, but there's ambiguity in how it can be interpreted. And then you might have an anti-racist humor where the comedian is deliberately trying to make sort of a point with the humor uh, to make clear that the joke is supposed to be intended um, in, in an anti-racist way. Um, and I think comedians, um, you know, certain comedians, that, especially the ones that, that, that try to be more explicitly anti-racist, right? Um, uh, I think it also requires a certain sort of, you know, ideological sort of background on, on, on the part of the comedian themselves too, to, to sort of have a more conscious and intentional way in which they're deploying humor. Um, that requires a sort of, um, I guess, a different level of crafting of, of the material. Um, but, it, but, it's, but it's harder. It's harder to do that kind of humor. It takes more work. It takes more labor. And, you know, uh, and, and if your job is to find the funny as quickly as possible, you know, to sort of, you know, to, to, to get your work out there, um, it's, so it's a much slower process. It's, it's a much more niche kind of 
uh, platform too. So, you know, if, 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 if your dreams are becoming a superstar comedian and, and a millionaire, and this and that, well, it might be hard to do that by doing this, this, this kind of, kind of humor. Um, it's, it's easier to go to, uh, yeah, to, to the, it's funny because it's true kind of scenario because it, that's much more readily sort of deciphered by, by the mass, vast majority of, of people. And you write that while black artists would later enter this genre of comedy and become successful blackface performers in their own right, and there is evidence of ironic and subversive humor by blacks in blackface that was readily consumed by black audiences to survive within this racist culture and succeed. Black artists and entertainers had to reproduce white renditions of blackness by participating in black racial ridicule and self-caricature and perpetuating vile stereotypes for a predominantly white audience within a white-owned entertainment industry. To what extent does that continue to this day, that black artists and entertainers still have to reproduce white renditions of blackness to get support from the white-owned industry to succeed? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the case for, you know, for, for black artists, but also for Latino artists, you know, for, you know, for a certain extent, I think for Asian artists as, as well. So, so I, I, you know, I, I think... Um, it, it definitely still plays out today. I mean, I think maybe the some some of these sort of uh, you know uh, dynamics might be changing a little bit. You know, there's so many different platforms um, that entertainers can plug into, um, and you know, I think there there's there's more research I think for sure to be done in this area in the way that sort of streaming platforms like Netflix and these other places. I mean, they really have, in a sense, kind of changed the game a little bit. Uh, in terms of this, the both the production and dissemination of of comedy uh, today, um, so so I think I think in some sense that that's definitely that's, that's still occurring. Um, I think comedians are also trying to sort of you know uh, some comedians are trying to move away from that. Um, I think the comedians that have been able to be uh, uh, successful in producing alternative sort of spaces alternative sort of you know uh the production of of their of their art form um are, are trying to do that but again it's it's always kind of this slippery slope because i mean just demographically right i mean the the uh the the so the far right is kind of crying that you know there's white genocide is on its way and you know white folks are going to disappear you know, any day now. I mean, uh, the reality is that white Americans are still the majority, you know, uh, in the United States, you know, uh, 65% or whatever it is. So, so th- I mean, so that's, you know, so just speaking in terms of raw numbers um, uh, and demographics, you know, if you're going to be a successful, you know, sort of, uh, you know, multimillionaire artist, you still really have to kind of cater to the uh, you know, to, to, the, to the masses. And, you know, when you split up the masses demographically, the largest, you know, sort of consumer base is still going to be white Americans because they have, one, they're the largest demographic, uh, but two, they often have the highest purchasing power because of histories of systemic racism, right? They have better jobs, better access to education, careers, and so forth. So, so that's, where the, that's where the money is. So I think in a sense, the entertainment industry still caters in that in that direction like you want to kind of please the white audience you know because that's where the money is that's where you know um so so i I definitely think it still happens that way but again you do have artists who are looking for niche audiences who might try to move away from that 
but but that's it's much harder to to kind of succeed or you know to to maintain um you know your sort of revenue stream when um uh when when you try to do that uh again because of the way that sort of race and capitalism um, operate and you mentioned uh, data scientist seth stevens davidowitz who finds that racist jokes were the top search hits for racially charged Google searches during the Obama elections, and he argues that racial animus cost Obama a significant amount of the white vote during both election cycles. This widespread racist ridicule of Obama laid part of the effective groundwork for the accelerated rise of a popular, amused racial contempt, which facilitated the expansion of a political populism that relied on ridicule and insult as a political tool during the 2016 presidential election. So how important has race racist humor been to the rise of fascism in the United States since 2008? What's the link between racist humor and the rise of the alt-right and fascism since the first time that President Obama was elected? Yeah. So, so, so yeah, so I, I, yeah, one of the chapters focuses on, on that particular case of, of Obama um, and especially the first presidential run in, in 2008. And, you know, uh, so it's a really interesting case, right? Because, you know, o- o- Obama as, as a sort of, um, as a political figure, you know, uh, really is the first sort of political candidate that, that really becomes sort of a, 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 a real contender or competitor for the White House than any other sort of person of color that's run for office before in the history of the United States. Um, and so this really kind of, uh, I, th- I think scared um, uh, conservatives, Republicans um, in, in particular. Um, and so, um, you know, and so, you know, one of the ways that, that you, you sort of try to, re- you know, uh, ease your sort of anxieties, I mean, this is not just in terms of racism, but more broadly is often through humor, right? And, and I think in the case of uh, uh, conservatives and Republicans, you know, they try to do that with Obama very quickly, like try to sort of mock him and ridicule him and figure out how to sort of knock him down a bit to kind of ease the anxieties of, you know, their, their, their constituents. Um, and, and early on, there was an, uh, some kind of hesitation about, well, how do, we, how do we take jabs at Obama? How do we mock him? How do we, we got to be careful because we don't want to be, you know, we don't want the race card pulled on us. How are we going to do this? Um, and so it started slowly but steadily. Um, and, and one of the ways it started was by, you know, making these associations of Obama with, with primates, with apes. And uh, I think it was on Rush Limbaugh's show, um, you know, w- w- one of the first associations that I found where, you know, one, one of his callers uh, apparently had, um, had associated Obama with um, the Curious George character. And Limbaugh thought it was kind of funny, but then kind of had some commentary about how, oh, well, that might be perceived as racist. Then he goes into this rant about political correctness and the hyper-policing of, of jokes. Um, but then he kind of, he, he, you know, he begins to accelerate his critique of Obama on his show there, uh, making more sort of racial sort of tropes on the show. You know, he, he sort of brings in his... Um, his, uh, his phone screener who's black on the show and he makes him become even sort of more sort of aggressive in his racial ridicule of Obama. Um, and I think it, it, it becomes this kind of this, this strategy early on uh, by, by conservative 
commentators and political figures and you know even you know conservative humorists and 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 cartoonists to sort of begin to make these kind of racial jabs at Obama under the guise of humor. Uh, and it really begins to pick up steam uh, uh, among the Republican Party. Uh, they're sharing internally, you know, racist jokes about Obama on email threads and, and, and things like that. You know, again, as a way to sort of, to, to sort of, de- they're trying to deflate Obama internally, right? They're trying to say, well, he's not really a threat. We're going to make fun of him. And, and, the, and the way they're making fun of him Increase increasingly is is kind of reproducing, and it, and it's and it's calling back to the prior era of you know white rule and white supremacy, where you know people of color were you know you dehumanize them through humor, um, and so that that increasingly becomes a part of the sort of right uh, and and conservative way in which how they're going to sort of deal with with Obama, and this is happening you know years before. Um, you know, someone like Trump is even on the scene. And so as it's accelerating, as this amused racial contempt um, for Obama uh, is becoming more normalized on the right, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of, again, connecting this back to Du Bois, it's making this kind of allegiance and this kind of solidarity of sort of, you know, white conservatives across class lines, right? Uh, that's saying, hey, you know, uh, well, well, this is this is our enemy. This is our target. This is the, uh, this is who we're rallying against. And so it's Obama the candidate, but it's not just Obama the candidate. It's Obama the black candidate, and it's not just Obama the black candidate. It's blackness itself. It's the it's the it's the idea that you know that people of color and that black Americans are getting are gaining footing in the society. They're gaining power, and so that threat of a black president, right, uh, is really terrifying for those folks who want to continue to have a society of, of white rule. Um, and so the increased racist humor of, uh, of Obama is bringing sort of white conservatives together across, you know, sort of, you know, the more moderate to the more extreme to the far right. They're all kind of taking joy and pleasure in racially ridiculing Obama. Um, and so it's creating this this kind of uh, this uh, this kind of this grouping of of of, uh, of of white of a white constituency on the right that someone like Trump, who you know uh, you know he was uh, dubbed early on you know the sort of you know insult comedian in chief or, or you know the the the, the you know, insult comedian uh, you know soon to be president who. Um, who was able to kind of, you know, grab that, you know, by the rein and sort of weaponize it and sort of make it his own um, uh, because of the fact that he so readily was, you know, willing to use ridicule, you know, racial ridicule, gender ridicule um, for for a base and for a, you know, political constituency that was already moving in that direction, right? So, so Trump doesn't manufacture that wave of sort of, you know, using contempt and ridicule against you know, a political opponent, and that was already happening. He just kind of, you know, steers it in his direction, and he rides that wave into the White House in 2016. You also write that the continued circulation of racist humor with its underlying ideology of racism, anti-blackness, and white supremacy has been facilitated by the increasing cultural resistance to so-called political correctness. This resistance not only helps provide space for engaging in racist humor among entertainers, 
politicians and commentators, but it also encourages others to engage in it, as if by doing so they are self-righteously standing up for free speech and fighting the political correctness and the cancel culture of the left. Among a vocal faction of Republicans and conservatives, including figures like the person you just mentioned, Rush Limbaugh, commentators on Fox News, and other right-wing media pundits and personalities in the digital age, resistance to progressives' condemnation of racism and racist humor is increasingly reframed as a battle with the so-called liberal media and liberal elites in an ongoing culture war. If they're going to win the culture war, this argument goes, they're going to have to stand their ground. Is opposition to racist humor, is that anti-freedom of speech, supportive of cancel culture, and an embrace of political correctness? Because this is where I'm confused, because when it comes to the guests on our show, they don't get the freedom of speech that you see people getting on Fox News. They don't get the access to the establishment culture uh, that you would see in uh, corporate mainstream media. They are already that already canceled by a corporate culture that doesn't give them airtime. I'm really tired of seeing people who make tens of millions of dollars a year telling me that they're a victim of cancel culture when clearly they are not because they are uh, making tons of money and are on media outlets all the time. So. Is opposition to racist humor, anti-freedom of speech, supportive of cancel culture, and an embrace of political correctness? Well, I mean, I think the the, the right likes to play that hand because it's uh, you know, it's it's a way they can sort of mobilize people, right? I mean, if it's you know, if 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 one of these sort of principles of, you know, the core principles, you know, probably you know, the, the you know, some might argue that the main principle of uh, you know the the United States kind of stands on is this idea of freedom of speech right you know freedom of speech in the United States has this halo around it that no other country on the planet really has right um, and, and, and I think here the idea that you know people's you know um, you know comments or in this case jokes are are being infringed upon uh, you know is seen as you know a losing of not only the right to say whatever the hell you want, or in this case, joke about whatever you want, um, but that it seems that, you know, well, we're losing the country, right? So it's like, oh, well, we're losing the country because we have a black president. We're losing the country because, you know, uh, you know, people of color are entering, you know, uh, what used to be exclusively white spaces. You know, people of color are moving into your suburbs where, you know, you used to have signs that said, you know, no blacks, you know, in our communities or, you know, no people of color, you know, can live here. Um, and and so, so the demographics of the society are changing the sort of the, the position and status of communities of color has been changing. You know, people of color are going to college you know, at rates, you know, you know, uh, that were never in, intended really in, in, in the society. Um, and so, uh, and, and so, so those people of color that, go, that are going to college, they're, you know, getting educations that are, that are sort of realizing that, wait a minute, we still have a long way to go. There's still, you know, a significant amount of racism and racial inequality in, in the society. Um, and then they see that, or they experience that, like you mentioned earlier in, in the interview, right? Uh, these, sort of, you know, comments or jokes that can be told intentionally or unintentionally in the workplace or, you know, in, in some kind of public setting. And then, you know, uh, because of the reality that racism and racial inequality is still there, a person of color might not find that funny. And then, 
they might leverage a complaint about it or, you know, speak to the, uh, speak to HR, speak to their, you know, to the employer or speak to, you know, whoever, you know, might have power to say, hey, sorry, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, uh, address this. Uh, it's seen as an infringement on this kind of, this idea that, well, you should be able to say whatever the hell you want without consequence. Um, and, I, and I think that the right really has, a sort of a field day with this and, and really uses it to their advantage because it's used as another example of we're losing our country, right? We're losing our country, we're losing our status, we're losing our place in the society. Um, and, 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 it, and it falls back into the sort of the hands of especially the far right who say, hey, you know, white genocide is underway. And, and well, how do you see it? Well, look at white people can't even joke anymore. We can't even we can't even tell jokes without people breathing down our neck. So so we're losing our country. So what are you going to do about it? Um, and, you know, one of the other chapters uh, in the book re really looks at the way the far right has been playing with this messaging uh, for a very long time. So the alt right, uh, it, it has been the more recent sort of, you know, the, the sort of the quote unquote millennial faction of the far right that has been sort of playing with this idea or, or weaponizing it. You know, but the but the far right, you know, the you know white supremacists and neo Nazis um, in the United States, they've been playing with this much more intentionally um, for decades. And and one of the one of the figures that was really sort of uh, strategic in, in deploying and weaponizing you know racist humor uh, it, to to kind of to to um, uh, to sort of grapple with this idea of you know political correctness and free speech was this guy by the name of Tom Metzger, who was the head of uh, you know, the white Aryan resistance. And he had a newspaper that, that he put out and the newspaper intentionally made use of racist cartoon illustrations. And these cartoon illustrations were bas are basically telling, they're telling a story about you know, uh, white society, white men in particular, and how white men are losing ground in the society. They're losing ground to people of color. They're losing spaces at the university because of affirmative action. You know, they're using, you know, uh, they're losing the, the, the power that they once had, you know, socially, politically, economically. In fact, even the police forces are now being sort of feminized because of feminism and because, you know, cops can't just, you know, bludgeon, you know, uh, black people and people of color to death because look at what happened, you know, after, after the Rodney King incident. Um, and so part of the part of the message and part of the punchline that you know uh, white Aryan resistance is giving through its kind of racist uh, rhetoric and cartoons is, is basically telling white people, hey, white people, you need to wake up. If you don't wake up, you know, your country's going to be taken from you. In fact, it's already being taken from you because all your rights are being taken, you know, and one of those rights is your freedom of speech and you can't even joke about anything anymore. So what are you going to do about it? And of course, this is a far right sort of, uh, you know, organization that's putting this out. And so their solution is, well, you got to, you know, if, if you're being met with, with, this, with this kind of violence uh, that's coming from, uh, you know, from the state, this kind of this cultural violence that is infringing on your rights, you know, as a free red blooded American, uh, you need to meet that with violence. So the only way you're going to really regain your status in this society is to be willing to be violent against the forces that are oppressing you. Um, and again, this is being done in cartoon form. 
um, you know, uh, to sort of try to reach wider audiences. Um, and so that e even liberal commentators, when they came across these cartoons, were like, you can't be serious. And one of those liberal commentators was a Christopher Hitchens who, who invited Tom Metzger on, on his show. Uh, and he asked him early on, like, like, what's the deal with these cartoons? I mean, they're pretty violent. I mean, you can't possibly be, you know, uh, you know, putting out there, uh, uh, you know, in a serious way that, that, you know, racial violence, you know, is, is what you're calling for. Um, and of course, Metzger, like, downplays it right away. And he says, no, no, it's just a joke, you know. Uh, and, and he says, in either way, we're not calling for just, you know, uh, uh, you know, violence uh, in the sense that we're going to strike first. No, it's just violence and self-defense, right? So this idea of standing your ground as a white person, you know, it, it, it's again a sort of uh, a sort of a, a strategy that's also been decades in the making by the right in terms of shifting the conversation about, you know, what well, we only use violence when it's called for in a righteous way in a, in a mode of self-defense. Um, but again, it's it's being animated in this in this. Um, uh, in this way that is, it's making use of humor to sort of put that idea out there. And then when they're called out about, hey, you're advocating violence, they say, no, no, it's just a joke. We're just kidding. But, you know, if you're violent against us, we're going to be violent against you. And you make that point in your book when it comes to racist humor and racialized violence by the police, which is another aspect that we only touched on in a few of the uh, responses to my questions. But is another big part of the book that I think people would be interested in. Again, we have been speaking with sociologist Raul Perez, author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. You can follow Raul on Twitter at Raul Perez SOC. The book comes out today. Go get it. It is absolutely fascinating. It will make you reconsider the way in which you see and consume humor. One last question for you, Raul, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience may hate your response. As someone who is myself visually impaired, who has a disability that is obvious to others, the fact that I'm legally blind is often the target of jokes. Is there a through line of whiteness connecting racist jokes with those that are sexist or jokes about the disabled? Or are these jokes driven by racism, sexist jokes, driven by misogyny, and disabled jokes fueled by ableism, which are all to some degree separate and outside of whiteness? Or are they all linked to a sense of whiteness? Yes, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, I mean, I was just talking about, you know, the Tom Metzger and, and the white Aryan resistance. Um, they certainly connect all of these jokes together. I mean, they, they, they use, you know, uh, you know, homophobic humor, you know, anti-feminist humor, you know, white supremacist humor, um, you know, uh, all of it is part of trying to tell a story about white, su white supremacy, right? And, you know, if, if white supremacy is supposed to be supreme, if they're supposed to be, you know, innately superior to everybody else, um, you know, then these other sort of categories of inferiority are all sort of kind of lumped together. You know, they might be dis distinct forms of inferiority, but but they see them as you know being on on par. So, so uh, absolutely right. So you know, so yeah, ableist humor, white supremacist humor, sexist humor, homophobic humor. I mean, this is all calling and playing on the idea that you know there's this category of the human condition that is inferior, and there's this other category that is superior, and you know, and whiteness and white supremacy, 
right? The, the idea is that, well, we're inherently superior to these other categories. Um, and, you know, and, and from their perspective is, you know, you, 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 know, you act accordingly. Um, and um, yeah, so anyways, that's... Uh, Raul, I cannot thank you enough for celebrating the publication of your book today with us here on This Is Hell Again. Raul Perez is author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. We would love to have you back on in the future, Raul, so you know I will be bugging you for the rest of your freaking life. Uh, thanks so much, Chuck. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, having me on this show. You know, uh, unfortunately, I, I couldn't be funnier today. I mean, the, the content of the, of the material, but... I uh, really love your show, and, and thanks so much for having me on. Raul, thank you so much, and take care. Enjoy the rest of your week. You too. Thanks so much. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. If that conversation with Raul Perez on racist humor and the, its role in spreading and reinforcing fascism, if that was in some way enlightening, enlightening to you and made you realize that, yes, this really is hell show, your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can support completely listener supported This Is Hell. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is the consequences of which questionable action are you running away from? I like this week's question from hell. So, yes, the qu- consequences of which questionable action are you running away from? And look at you multitasking by fading <laughs> up the music <laughs> I, while I, and doing the question from hell. Very I'm good job. I'm thinking of many things at once, so <laughs> yes. I kind of missed my cue there. That's okay. okay. <laughs> um, so, let's see. You want some responses, yes. I assume. Yes. The last one was from Craig P., who said, looks like he got caught peeing in the showers yeah. i guess they're talking about the image yeah of josh uh, holly running away yeah, yeah. kind of looks like that let's but jeffrey zt says that the questionable action they're running away from consequences from is getting that walter mondale tattoo <laughs> i just found a mondale ferraro campaign button in my brother's stuff and i was like why the hell was he wearing a mondale ferraro <laughs> i had to google him i don't know any of these white man politicians <laughs> see that's an awesome <laughs> very good for you thank god for yeah, you i keep my mind space like, yes exactly clear, you know exactly <clears throat> okay how will how will Image says, real, going into debilitating debt for an arts degree. Okay. Funny, casually giving blanket consent to an insatiable masochist with few boundaries and a f- key to my apartment. Wow. I don't know if that's funny. Yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of frightening and <laughs> it's funny. It's scary. Yes. Yeah. Uh, our very own Pete Valavanis says, your mom. Of course. <laughs> John T says, Holding a handgun out in public, a Chicago tradition. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I, you know, on the day of the Carries thing, I was out walking on Devon and almost saw somebody get out of their car and hit a biker with a bar. Like, like wow. a metal bar. I was just like, I'm just glad it's not a gun. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Anyways. Uh, the bo- neighborhood's not that bad. <laughs> Bogey G says PBR. All right. 
And Genevieve H. says, moving back to St. Louis. <laughs> That's an interesting thing to be running away from. Mm-hmm. Any more, or do you want to wrap it up there? It's up um, to you. There are like four left oh, on let's here, go through so them. on Facebook. So Kuhn L. says, I don't know how to say their first name, Kuhn, uh, being on these hell sites for a decade and a half. <laughs> and I think they're referring to social media. And I'd have to concur. Mm. A decade and a half sounds like a long time. That does sound like a long time. Bree Bree P says 140k in student loans. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Brayden S says renting out hell and living in Texas. And the last response to the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? Neil C. says, giving the bully Monopoly money to leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later on this week's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, on July 26, 1950, 72 years ago this week in Korea, where the 38th parallel had been established after World War II as a boundary between the two parts of the country allied with the Soviet Union and the United States. South Korean troops were in retreat after a surprise invasion by northern troops intent on reunifying the peninsula. Their Korean War was on, and in response, the U.S. had sent in army troops from its occupation force in Japan, although it was never really called... The Korean War was never really called a war, per se, by the United States. Instead, the war was officially known as a police action, despite your local police not having access to, you know, hundreds of thousands of armed troops, a military draft, and B-52 bombers, which were used in a massive bombing campaign that dropped more bomb tonnage on Korea than the U.S. did throughout the entire Pacific campaign of World War II. The U.S. soldiers were not well-trained or equipped to handle the northern Korean offensive, which was accompanied by a surge of civilians who were hurrying south to get away from the fighting. U.S. Army commanders also feared that northern North Korean soldiers out of uniform were concealing themselves among the crowds of refugees, so they were ordering their troops to fire on civilians, which is barbaric, with no offense to barbarians who happen to be listening to the show right now, or niche demographic. One group of some 600 Korean refugees had been escorted by U.S. soldiers to a railroad bridge near the town of Nogunri, where shortly after being searched for weapons, they were targeted in a U.S. airstrike. As the civilians ran for cover, they were fired upon by troops of the U.S. 7th Cavalry using rifles, mortars, and machine guns, because in 1950, that's apparently how the U.S. fought communism and brought democracy, that is, through mass murder and executions. The bombing and gunfire continued for four days, killing an estimated 400 people, mostly women, children, and elderly men, naturally. Some refugees survived or survived by hiding under piles of dead bodies and drinking water from a nearby stream that was contaminated with blood. They were later rescued by North Korean soldiers who moved in after U.S. and South Korean troops withdrew, in case you were wondering why so many Koreans supported the North. The no-gun re- incident uh, received little attention in the United States until 1999 when the Associated Press published an investigative report based on testimony from Korean survivors and corroborated by U.S. Army veterans who had taken part in the massacre. One vet said he had fired out of fear that Korean guerrillas in the group would kill him if he didn't kill them first. He said, we got orders to eliminate them and we mowed them all down. The Army 
wouldn't take chances. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. Sorry, let me get this email. <laughs> it's here, it's here. Give me one second. Okay. Award-winning journalist Amanda Sperber will also return to This Is Hell to discuss her new article at The Baffler, Prelude to a Redeployment, Listening for Signs of the Americans in Kismayo, Somalia. Nice pronunciation on Kismayo. I had to look it, that up. Very nice. It was totally God. I, I was just praying I didn't look it up either. <laughs> I <laughs> and of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin during this week's moment. Jeff takes us to the super true town that was the model of the mythical Lake Wobegon. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing, putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.